Obrigado. Here we go. I'm going to throw some thoughts at you this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can go to Luke 10. We're going to talk out of Luke 10. And then at the end of the service, I'm going to get Daniel up and we're going to sing a song. And I'm going to ask you to join us in singing that song and make it a prayer if you feel like it connects with you. First of all, I've got a question. Ruth, did Daniel go home last week and wash your feet? He did. Wow. Did you really? You didn't, did you? In the spiritual, he washed your feet. That's not what I was talking about, Ruth. eh? I meant in the physical, in the natural. Did he wash your feet? No, he didn't. Well, look, I've got a word for you, Daniel. Your life's not going to be transformed by what you know. It's transformed by what you do with what you know. Right? Very deep. Just don't go making a little statue of me and put me on your shelf. I'm not a god. I'm just a man like yourselves with a very deep thinking. Yeah, I know, Rob, you wouldn't, but some of these other people might. Your life's not transformed by what you know. We can come to church. We can sit in church. We can hear things, get information. We can even be bedazzled by the brilliant preaching of somebody way wiser than me. But if we don't do anything with what we know, what does it say? Knowledge puffs up. Just makes us proud because we know a lot of stuff. It's what we do that changes our lives. It's actions that change a human life. It doesn't matter whether you're talking spiritually or whether you're talking about your business or your finances or your marriage or your parenting or your sporting uh, prowess. It doesn't matter. It's not what you know that's going to transform you in those areas. It's what you actually do with what you know. That's the whole point of the wise and foolish builder story. They both build a house. They both have wind and storm come against it. They both get battered. They both are under pressure. One stands, one falls. And Jesus says the only difference is that the wise guy actually heard the words of Jesus and did them. So he got knowledge, but it didn't change him until he did something with it. And the foolish guy just got the knowledge and decided, well, that's good enough. I just know, I just got to know the stuff. That's all. I need. Just, as long as I know it, um, you know, it's sweet, but... Uh, what you know doesn't transform your life. It's what you do with what you know. So we've been uh, talking last week. We were talking about washing uh, one another's feet. And we were talking about the Passover meal and where Jesus got his disciples together. And he sits them down and he goes, I'm going to give you an example now. And he washes their feet. And then he stands up and he says, in response to what I've done for you, washing your feet, I want you to now do this to one another. He didn't say in response of what I've done for you, I want you now to do it back to me and wash my feet. I'm God and I'll give to you and you keep giving back to God. What he said was as God gives to you, the correct response is that you take that and you start giving to other people. Instead of this focal point of this uh, vertical up and down, just me and God and, and forget the rest of the world, Jesus flips the whole religious landscape for the Jew on its axis and goes, it's no longer just good enough that you pray and read a Bible and do all the religious duties and the rituals because under this new agreement, this new movement, I'm looking for something different out of the people that follow me. I'm not looking for religious observance to rules. I'm looking for loving responses that go outward to other people, not just back to God. In other words, I'm building a community of people who love. I'm trying to transform you and turn you into a person that has the capacity, the ability and the willingness to love other people. 
Sometimes I think we can hide behind the religious stuff. We can pray and spend hours and months and years praying about an issue with never practically doing anything about it. And we feel good because we're praying about it. But we're not just called to pray about things, we're called to do things. Not just called to look at the needs of the world and pray, God, would you meet all the needs? We're also called to do something. It's interesting to me that, that Jesus, uh, when he sent his disciples out, there's a, a, a time recorded there where he says to his disciples, he says, uh, the harvest is plentiful. You all know this one, the laborers are few. And then he says to those disciples, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Now what's interesting is the people that he chose to ask to pray for laborers to be sent out were the ones who were going out themselves. It was the ones who were already meeting the need. Jesus said, because you're meeting the need, because you're prepared to meet the need, I want you to pray for other people to join you in meeting the need. Not pray for somebody else to meet the need, but let's pray for others to join you in the meeting of that need. You guys are already going into all the world. The harvest is plentiful. Laborers are the problem. You guys are going. I want you to pray for people to join you as you go, instead of just praying somebody else meet the need. And I've, I've been involved and been around church long enough to see groups that gather around and we just, we're praying for God to do something. Uh, revival is a classic. We can lock ourselves in our prayer closets and pray for revival. God, would you send revival? You know, when I go through the record of the book of Acts, I don't see the early believers, those that were part of this movement from the very inception, I don't see them praying, God, would you send revival? I see them praying for boldness to go and do what they knew they were meant to do. They're not sitting there praying, you know, they're going, God, give us the boldness to do what we know we're meant to do down here on earth in this tiny amount of time we have. Revival, I see a lot of people using revival prayer as, God, I'm praying for you to do out there in the world that which I know you've asked me to do, but I'm going to pray you do it so I don't have to get my hands dirty. I don't have to get too close to people. I don't have to risk embarrassment. I don't have to risk getting hurt. So, Lord, would you bring revival by going out there in the streets and doing that which you told us to go and do while we sit here and pray? And God's up there going, well, hang on a second. I told you, go and do all this stuff. I told you to reach out, to share, to love, to care. I told you to be a reflector of who I am. I've done my bit down here now, and I'm supporting you in what you do, but I'm asking you, why don't you go and do that stuff that, that in the first 30 years, the recorded history of the book of Acts that we have of the early church, you know what these guys were? These guys were not people who just knew stuff. The world was not transformed because they knew that there was a guy called Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God, who predicted his own death, burial, resurrection, and then pulled it off. The world didn't change because they knew that. It changed because they did something with what they knew. And as a church... We need to make sure that uh, we can sit through these meetings, you know, like I said, on average, maybe some of us do 52 church meetings a year. That's a lot of stuff we're getting, but what are we actually doing with the things? And I'm not saying every week you should be doing something I'm saying. What I'm saying to you is what you feel and sense and hear the Holy Spirit saying to you today while I'm speaking. What are you doing with that? Last week, did the Holy Spirit speak to you? Is he saying something to you? And what are you doing with that? Because the only way that, that your world will change and the world around you will change and your situations and circumstances change is not by finding out what I should do, but by actually doing it. By actually going out there and doing it. So last week we talked about Jesus' response, which was, must have been radical to them. Because when Jesus washed their feet, what would be the first thing you would want to do if Jesus was physically here washing your feet? You'd want to say, rightio, Jesus, your turn. You sit down. I want to do it back to you because you did it to me. But Jesus says, I don't want you doing it back to me. I want you now to do it to each other. Go and love one another and wash one another's feet and serve one another. And, and the New Testament, the writers in, in this part of the Bible we call the New Testament, there's so many, there's about 60 uh, different references to one anothering one another. 
what we should do with one another. There's a real focus, not just on this, but there's a real big focus on this. How do we treat one another? What do we do with one another? So I want to take that a little bit further this week, and I want to look at a story that we all know as the story of the, product, uh, the, story of the Good Samaritan. Now, let me just say something. We call it the Good Samaritan. There's no way on planet Earth that the Jews in Jesus' day, if they were put in the little headlines and titles, they would never put the word good and the word Samaritan together. This is something we, we accepted. They would never have accepted the word good and the word Samaritan linked together in a sentence unless it was good God get rid of those Samaritans. You know? Good Lord, there's a smelly Samaritan. Good Lord, get that Samaritan away from my family. They would never have put good Samaritan together without a few other phrases in between it. But here we have the story of the Good Samaritan. I want to just throw some thoughts at you out of this because it's really interesting. Last week we talked about one anothering and the importance of one anothering. But we need to understand that one anothering one another is not the end. One anothering one another is the beginning. Learning to one another one another is the first step towards ending up where Jesus actually wants us to end up. See, Jesus knows human nature and he knows each of us and he never expects us to go from, from here to from, from zero. Who, who likes fast cars? What's the fastest a car can get from zero to 100? Somebody help me. What's the fastest? How much? Two, yeah, I thought you would know it. 2.3 seconds. The fastest car to go from zero to 102.3 seconds. Jesus does not expect you and your life to go from zero to 102.3 seconds. Isn't that good? I don't know about you, but it's, it's probably, he knows it's probably going to take me 77 years to get to 50. Some of us are a little bit slower. But it's not so much about the speed you're traveling, it's the direction you're traveling. Just as long as we're heading in the right direction. It doesn't matter about the speed. Jesus isn't worried about the speed. He's not angry at you because you're not fully matured and formed right now. He's not mad at you. He's not angry. He loves you. And he just works with us and he's patient and he's kind. And some of us travel faster than others. It's irrelevant, the speed. What matters is the direction. We're walking towards becoming that which uh, he, he purchased us to be. We're walking towards becoming the people that we're meant to be. But in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus puts a spin on loving one another. And he adds something to it. Now, here's how the story goes. Starting in verse 25, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer, a teacher of the law, he stood up and he tested him. So this guy's trying to test Jesus. A lot of, a lot of people asked Jesus lots of questions. Not everybody was sincere in their questioning. A lot of people were trying to trap him because he was upsetting the apple cart of the religious world in his day. And so this guy comes to him and he wants to test him. And here's his question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said this to him, he said, what is written in the law? What's your reading of it? And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He answers him and he says this, you shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. He says to him, you've answered rightly, do this and you'll live. Now, this is not enough because the guy comes back with a second question. But he, in verse 29, wanting to justify himself. Wanting to justify himself, he says this question, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? So the summation of the law is love God and love people. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's not a first and second as in priority. It's first and second as in my one child came first, one came second. One's not better than the other. I just one came first in time, the other came second. 
And this is what Jesus is meaning when he said, you, you know what the, the greatest commandment is love God and the second is like it. It doesn't mean second in importance. He says second in, in, in sequence is love God. In other words, if you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, you will be loving your neighbor as you love yourself. We talked about this a few weeks ago. So this guy wants to trap Jesus, so he throws a second question. He says, okay, Jesus, then who exactly is my neighbor? Not a bad question because you're telling me that's who I should be loving. So you explain to me who's my neighbor. But he already had an idea of who his neighbor was. This is the only time in, in the New Testament recorded where anybody puts these two particular passages from the Old Testament together. One's in Deuteronomy, one's in Leviticus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength is in Deuteronomy. And then love your neighbor as yourself is from Leviticus. Now this guy's a teacher of the law, so he knows exactly what he's asking and he also knows what he believes to be the answer. Now, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Here's what it says. It says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against who? Who? Who who will you not take vengeance against and who will you not bear a grudge against? Who is it? The children of who? Oh, your people. Okay, so the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. According to a legal reading of that passage, who's your neighbour? Your people. To a Jew... This passage is saying this, that your neighbor as a Jew is a fellow good Jew. That's your neighbor. So when, when, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, this guy's there going, I know exactly what that means. What that means is this, that I have an obligation. If I'm really loving God, I've only really got an obligation to love other people who are just like me. Who think like me. Who act like me. Who smell like me. You have my sense of humour, dress like me. In other words, to a good homegrown Jew, love your neighbour as yourself literally mean I am obliged to love only one kind of person and that's another Jew. As long as I'm loving another Jew, I'm fulfilling the law. This is where he's going. But it says there that he said this to justify himself. I wonder whether he was one of these guys that went to church and loved everybody in church. And when he dealt with other Christians, he was Christian. But maybe when he went to work and he wasn't dealing with Christians, he didn't feel any obligation to reflect Jesus to those people. I can leave my values and my faith at the door because when I'm in the boardroom, they're not Christians. I'm under no obligation to love any of these people. I can walk in there with my guns loaded. I can be as shrewd as I want. I can, I can do whatever, say whatever. I'm under no obligation to care for you. You can be going through whatever. I don't have to extend any sort of help or assistance because you're not one of mine. You're not one of mine. You're not a Jew. You're not a Christian. You're not somebody that is part of my... You're not my neighbour because you're not a Christian. If I can put it in 2019 terms. Remember last week we talked about one another in one another. One another in one another is step one. Learning to one another one another is really, really important. But it's not the full stop. Learning to one another one another is a comma. And that comma leads on to the next one, which is once you've learned to one another one another, now you've got to start to one another them others. Let's learn to one another one another, but it doesn't stop here because who's your neighbour? It's people who don't think like you, who don't look like you, who don't act like you, who don't believe what you believe, who don't smell like you, who don't listen to the same kind of music as you. All of a sudden Jesus goes, let's broaden 
the scope of my people's reflection. Let's broaden the scope of where I'm calling my people to love. You see, I don't believe when Jesus came and died and was was resurrected and he envisioned this thing called the church, that the church would be these little clusters and groups of people that get so busy and so caught up in loving God that we end up removing ourselves completely from the needs of a broken and a lost and a hurting world around us, that we have no time for anybody outside the walls of our own fellowship. One thing we've tried to do here at Arise is we don't have lots and lots of stuff going on. We do that deliberately because you're not called to just only be here. I need you and you need me and we need to spend time together and fellowship together. But we also need to be getting out there amongst the lost, the broken, the hurting and the needy world because we're called to make a difference in that world. We're called to take Jesus, what Jesus said to the disciples, going to all the world, not just the Jewish world, not just the neat, clean and tidy world. I want you to go into all the world and take this life-transforming message of the unconditional love of God. Not, 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 it doesn't change because you're in a dirty place or because you're not doing things right. It doesn't change. The message is very simple. God loves you as you are. As Brennan Manning once said, God loves us as we are and not as we should be, for none of us are as we should be. None of us are as we should be. But he loves us and that's our message. And so Jesus is, is trying to mess with their minds a little bit here. You can imagine a Jewish audience standing there and then this, this, this religious leader says to him, he says, well, who is my neighbour? He already knows the answer. And guess what? So does every other good Jewish man, woman and child standing around that group listening. We know the answer to this one. We don't even need you, Jesus, to tell us this. We know this one. We've been brought up with this stuff. It's another Jew. It's fellow Jews. It's other people like us. And Jesus says, well, I'm about to turn your world upside down. Let me tell you a story. Gather in, kiddies. And he tells him this story. He says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Let me just make it very clear. When Jesus begins that story, every Jewish person standing there goes, figures. Figures. You see, there's a a road that goes from Jerusalem, and it winds its way through very barren land. And it goes down to Jericho, which is about 800 feet, I think, below sea level. And there was a high population of priests and religious people in Jericho that would, gen- would make the trek regularly to Jerusalem for sacrifices and worship and then back down. There was a lot of religious people that would travel this road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And the road actually had a name. It was called the Road of Blood, the Path of Blood, because it was so isolated and there were so many robbers and so many bad people hanging around there waiting to take advantage of somebody. So the minute that Jesus says there was a man and he's travelling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he got beat up, everyone's there going, figures. Of course you're going to get beat up on that road, dummy. So come on, Jesus, when are you going to get to the point? Who's my neighbour? We know who that is. A guy walks on a dangerous road, gets beat up. Oh, please. Oh, come on, get to the point. Of course. Of course.
Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he he passed by on the other side. He's a priest. He's a Jew. And the assumption we're making here is that the guy that got beat up is a Jew. He's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho as well. The audience are thinking, Jewish man walking that road gets beat up. We get it. Now, along comes a priest. He's your pastor. And he's walking along and he sees this guy on the ground. And what does he do? He sees him. He walks around the other side of the road to avoid this guy that's laying there. It's interesting. Jesus says that he was beat up. And they stripped him of his clothing, they wounded him, they parted him, and it says they left him half dead. I'm sure that they weren't trying to be funny, but I find that phrase funny, half dead. Anyone ever seen The Princess Bride? Old movie Princess Bride, Billy Crystal has a cameo in it, as, as the, the, and they bring the guy in and they lay him on the table, and the, the wife goes, oh, he's dead, and he listens to his ear, and he lifts up his arm and he pumps some oxygen and he hears something. He goes, no, he's not dead, he's mostly dead. But mostly dead means partly alive. And then, of course, he works on him from the standpoint that he's only mostly dead. So apparently this guy was only half dead. But we don't know what he looked like. But the priest decides that he's going to walk around him. And then next comes a Levite. Along comes a Levite. Another religious guy, maybe worship leader. And he walks along. And he sees the same scene. And what does he do? He runs around. And he doesn't give assistance. Now, I can imagine the audience by this stage are going, hang on, this is not making a great deal of sense now. Now he's starting to get their attention. The two people that you would have thought you could count on, they do a big beeline and they get around this guy and they don't come after him. We don't know why they didn't do it. We just know that the priest saw the need and he changed sides of the road to avoid helping. We don't know why the Levite did it. We just know that the Levite saw the need and he walked to the other side of the road to avoid it. Now maybe, maybe they did it to avoid the inconvenience of having to help someone. How many of you know when you help somebody in need, it can be quite inconvenient at times? Maybe, maybe it was just too inconvenient. It didn't fit their schedule. Maybe they had something more important than helping a human being made in the image of God. I don't know. Maybe they wanted to avoid becoming unclean by touching a dead body. There was a whole ritual they had to go through. If you, you touch a dead body, basically there's the next week of your life in isolation. You know, because you touch a dead body, you're now dirty and you've got to go through all these ritual purifications. And so the guy's half dead, so maybe they only saw that half. And so they didn't go to him because, look, if we do do that, then it's going to not only cost us an inconvenience now of having to stop where I'm going, but the consequence of going near him, this could, this could lead to something else, to something else, to something else. I don't really want to get that involved because, you know, I mean, if I say I'm going to help you now, and then all of it, you know, no. It's easier just not to get to know you. It's easier just to pull back and stay away. I don't know if I want to go there with people. <laughs> Maybe he was on his way to perform some religious duty. I mean, he was a priest, you know. Maybe, in fairness to him, maybe the priest had a sermon to write. Maybe he had a sermon to write, and so writing that sermon became more important than one anothering this person. Maybe the Levite was a worship leader, and maybe he had a conference. Maybe he's going to a conference, working on a song. The Lord just dropped a song to him, and so he had to run, so I see the need, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to go and, and pen the song. Because that kind of stuff is for God. It's more important. That religious stuff is more important, so let's keep about our religious stuff and don't worry about the poor person there that's naked, bleeding, and half dead. So here are two heroes of the Jewish faith that avoid helping this guy, that avoid being involved in him. As far as Jesus is concerned, neither of them are really good excuses. Neither of them are really, really good excuses. And then Jesus moves on, and this is where he redefines who your neighbor is. 
He says this, but a certain Samaritan, now at that point, all of the audience would have went, he's talking about those half-breeds. Those half-caste people that back at seven, it was 700-something uh, BC when the uh, Assyrian army invaded and, and, and wiped them out and took all the Jews away and just left a handful there and then they sent all these other foreigners in to live there and then the Jews intermarried with the foreigners and they started adopting uh, different gods. But there was a remnant of them that stayed committed to, to Jehovah, to Yahweh, the same as what the Jews did, but it didn't matter. They had a different place of worship than the Jews said Jerusalem. They said, no, no, it's over here. They had a few differences, so these guys were different. They had a nickname for the Samaritans. They called them dogs. That gives you a bit of an idea of how they felt about Samaritans. All of a sudden, here's a Samaritan coming to a Jew that's beaten and half dead on the ground. Now, what do you think is going to happen here? Well, as Jesus goes on, I'd be thinking, okay, here we go. This is where the Samaritan goes and puts the boot into him because he's a Jew. He doesn't do that. Isn't it amazing? But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had... Compassion on him. He had compassion on him. So he went to him. He bandaged his wounds. Poured on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Don't lose the impact. This audience is sitting there going, no. Do not make a Samaritan the hero of the story, Jesus. This will be the end of your ministry. Don't do it. This is too much. You're going to tell me that the good old Jews, we walked straight past him and a Samaritan. Jesus is about to make the despised one the hero of the story. Poured oil and wine, he set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I'll repay you. Then he looks the man in the eye, this religious teacher. He says, so which of these three do you think was neighbour? Him who fell among the thieves. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. So he just says, he who showed mercy on him. Couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Jesus didn't mind calling him a Samaritan. This guy just couldn't even bring himself to say the word, the Samaritan. He says, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. What a powerful story. I love the picture of compassion in that, that when this man had compassion, genuine compassion motivated him to some kind of action. And it wasn't just to pray. Lord, I just pray for that man over there. Just bring somebody along, God, to bandage up his wounds and to look after him. God, I pray you'd meet his needs. I pray, Father, that you would bring... And God's up there going, I'm doing it right now. I'm trying to do it right now. Compassion motivates us to action. 
Jesus, in that one story, expanded the concept of neighbour to now include those beyond the four walls of the church. Beyond the four walls of the church. Your neighbour is not just the person that lives next door to you. My neighbours are not just the people that I agree with or the people that I like or the people that share my sexual preference or the people that, 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 that follow my football team or the people that I think smell correct or the people that don't drink too much or the people that don't put needles in their arms or the people that treat their kids and their partners right. My neighbour is beyond that scope now. This is what Jesus is trying to say. My neighbour is the human race. And I'm only here for about the size of the crack in that wall. It's about how much time I've got to love my neighbour as myself. And it's all going to be over. It's interesting. This requires a broad, horizontal focus. No longer a narrow, vertical one. God's people are called to a broad, horizontal focus. Eyes out. Not just this narrow, vertical focus where it's just all the religious duties and that stuff. If God has really impacted my world and changed my world, it's not outworked by religious stuff. It's outworked by love and compassion and mercy for others that are created in his image. I'm motivated to get amongst it. I'm motivated to move out into those realms. Galatians 6.10 says this. It says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. What's he saying? He's saying, therefore, as we have opportunity, when the opportunity arises, just look for opportunity. There's opportunities all around us to say g'day to somebody that nobody else talks to. There's opportunities around us to, to help somebody that nobody else is helping. There's opportunities all around us. He says, as often as you get those opportunities, he says, do good to, to who? To all. And just in case people sitting there are thinking, you mean everybody in the church, he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, not exclusively to those who are of the household of faith, but especially. Why? Because you've got to learn to do it in here. When you learn to do it in here, the overflow is that you start doing it out there. We learn to one another, one another. And the overflow of learning to one another, one another is we start one anothering out there. It moves beyond the walls of the church. The compassion of God takes us beyond the four walls of the church and we start caring and thinking about people who are outside the walls of the church. Here's, here's the reality with church these days. Church is more attractive, but people are less attracted. Church is more exciting, but people are less excited. You know, I used to think this. Lord, bring somebody in in a wheelchair, and maybe you think like this too. And so I just want to say, if you do, it's okay, because I, I understand, but I've changed my thinking. Lord, bring someone in a wheelchair, and let's pray for them, and let's see them jump out of the chair. And everybody will hear about it, and everyone will come running to the church. Now, I believe in miracles with all my heart, and I pray every week, Lord, I, I'm, I'm, I'm praying, God, let this Sunday be the Sunday of miracles. Let some stuff happen. Let us see some of that stuff. Bring your super and place it onto our natural, and let's see some things shift. I believe for it every day. I'll continue to believe for it. But here's what I realized. I look back at the history of revivals, even in the West. Miracles, signs and wonders, and you've all been alive and you've all read about them. Brownsville and, and, and the airport vineyard, and it's happened in our lifetime. But what happens is you see a miracle, everyone gets excited, and then what? Within six months, 12 months, everything's back to normal again. It's gone. People aren't looking for a place where there are miracles. 
looking for a place where there's love. And I wonder sometimes whether if I got someone in here with a wheelchair and they stood up and maybe, maybe the media got a hold of it and maybe people started talking about it and everybody with needs started running and God starts doing it. Eventually, when all the miracles and that stop, will they find a place of love? If they don't, they'll just drift back out because people are looking for love. They're looking for love. It's really challenging me because I'm, 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 I'm going back to my own uh, self and re-examining myself and going, am I, a, am I a loving person, God? Am I allowing my relationship with you to impact me to the point where I'm prepared to be inconvenienced and to love others? Or is it all about my schedule? It was all about my needs. It's all about where I'm comfortable. It's all about what I want, what I don't want. Or God, am I prepared to, to, to expand and to be more like the person that you envisioned 2,000 years ago when you said, I'm going to birth this movement called the church and here's what they're going to look like. Am I prepared to let myself go there or do I want to just keep going business as usual? Non-Christian people are not, may not be interested in church, but they're definitely interested in being one another. They're interested in being helped, served, encouraged, loved. It's the core of humanity to feel like they belong somewhere. And they're looking for places to belong. A church service does nothing to meet the deepest needs of a person uninterested in God. But being one another does. Being one another by somebody, it does. You know, Billy Graham Institute, um, they used to do lots of data and stats and things when, when he would have his crusades. And here's an interesting piece of information that came out of that. Um, and I know this stuff because I teach on evangelism around the place at different places. And, and, and one of the, the bits of data that have come out of that is this, that when Billy Graham, people come forward and they respond at an altar call and they go and they survey them and ask them questions, they found this, that 85% of people that responded at a Billy Graham altar call were there because a Christian friend or relative brought them. In other words, they were one another by somebody else. And Billy just got to chop the top off the corn, that's all. 85% of them that responded, before they responded, were one another by somebody in the church whilst they were outside the church. Isn't that amazing? They were one another by somebody in the church whilst they were outside the church. When I was doing my YWAM training, there was this lady that spoke on um, relationships. She was a little old lady with grey hair, and she came on in, and she spoke on relationships, and she was talking about, about um, uh, kissing, I think it was. You know? And she made this statement. I never forgot it. She said this. She said, Everybody, kissing starts that which kissing cannot satisfy. Yeah? Every one of you know what I'm talking about. Kissing starts that which kissing cannot satisfy. So she was encouraging all these good Christian um, young couples don't kiss because then kissing leads to something else and then something else and then before you know it, you're going too far. But she said this statement, kissing starts that which kissing can't satisfy. Well, I want to rephrase that and claim that statement for myself. And I want to put it this way, Luke, work it up on the board. Oh, here you go. One anothering in the church is meant to start that which one anothering in the church can't satisfy. So we one another each other in here and we get so excited about one anothering and we see the fruit of one anothering and we feel the benefit of being one anothered and the joy of being the one anotherer and we get so excited about that that this one anothering all of a sudden can't satisfy it. So we feel like we've got to go out there and one another people outside there because this one anothering here is not satisfying enough anymore. I love one anothering you, but gee, it's so much more satisfying when I get to one another someone that hasn't been one anothered before. It's awesome. So one anothering in the church... Starts that one anothering in the church itself can't 
satisfied. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is trying to take this, this movement called the church on a journey, love one another, and especially those of the faith, but not exclusively those of the faith. We've got to look outside of ourselves and realize that what people are looking for is love and one anothering. That will change the world. Miracles won't, but I want miracles. Um, big programs won't, but I'm okay with them. Uh, big church buildings won't, but I'm okay. It doesn't bother me, but at the end of the day, all of that stuff is just uh, uh, aesthetic. If we don't have love, then maybe we don't really have God. Maybe we just got a good program. Charismatic speaker or really trendy looking worship leader with ponytail <laughs> one anothering it's got power so I'll finish with this why did the Samaritan not get beaten and left for dead he was on the same road wonder why he didn't get beaten up and left for dead maybe, maybe it was just good timing maybe good timing maybe uh, he planned better do you want to come on up I want to finish with this song Maybe he planned it better. He planned his day better, maybe. I don't know. He knew what time to be there when the robbers would be having lunch or something. I don't know. It's possible. It doesn't tell us why. But here's a theory. Maybe he realised when he walked past the guy beaten and bloodied on the ground and he had compassion. He found compassion. The others didn't. Uh, maybe, maybe he found that compassion because of this. Maybe. It's a, it's a theory. Maybe he looked at that man on the ground and realized, you know what, I'm walking the same path as you. And, and there go I, but for the grace of God. That could be me on the ground. I could have got here five minutes before you and I could be the one laying in a pool of blood. I could be the one beaten, naked. I could have had my credit card stolen, my license cut up. That could have been me. That could have been me. And I think one of the keys to finding compassion for others is the realisation that it could be you. That could be you. That person that's not in church this morning that's drowning their sorrows behind a bar, it could be you. It's not, but it could be. There go you, but for the grace of God. That lady putting a needle in her arm. Hey, there go I, but for the grace of God. There go I, but for the grace of God. I didn't plan it any better. I don't think I was lucky. I think it's the grace of God. There go I, but for the grace of God. The greatest Jesus attractant in the world is you. It's not a great worship team or lights or, you know, great preaching. It's, you know, anyone, anyone can be clever and draw a crowd. People all around the world do it. I'm hoping what we have here is something more than that. That we have genuine love. And I want to finish with this song because I don't believe I can be that loving person in my own strength. I believe I need God to do something in my heart so that I can be that person. So we're going to sing this song and we're going to finish up. Help me to love with open arms like you do. I can't do this. Holy Spirit, I pray right now for each of us in this room, Lord, that you would do something in our hearts. God, we know God, we know the stuff. Again, it's not what we know. We can know that we have to love the world. We can know that we need to one another, one another. We can know the stuff. 
but the, the courage and the strength to do it is another thing, Father. And I pray, Lord, for, for each person in this room, give us the courage to make the necessary changes, adjustments, whatever it is that we've got to do. Lord, to, to, to look at that crack in that wall and realize that that's literally the time we got. And what do I want to fill it with? Getting things? Or do I want to fill that with one anothering, with loving people, with reflecting who you are to the world around you? to the world around us, Lord, that you're not just a a maker of a new religion, but you are the creator of a new way of life, a way of love. Thank you, Lord. If you you want to make this a prayer for you this morning, I want to encourage you, just a little act of faith, just stand to your feet and just sing. We'll finish up after this. It's better than me praying. It sums it up way better.